2: This episode is brought to you by Dream Symbols, and I have a special announcement. Dream is starting what they're calling the Dream Hang, and the first event is going to be February 9th at Fame Studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. So, what they're doing is they're going to bring a bunch of cymbals down to the studio. They're going to, have, you know, you can chest them out. They're going to have Scott Pellegrum there. He's going to be demoing, they're going to be recording stuff. They've got Telefunken Mics as a partner for these events, so you get to see, you know, how these cymbals respond under really nice high end microphones in one of the most famous studios in the world. So February 9th at the Fame Studio in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. If you're in the area, you should definitely go down, hang out for the Dream Hang. Everything that will be there will be uh, available for purchase as well. And they'll be doing more and more of these as well. So definitely check out Dream's Facebook page for the event info. Again, that's February 9th, the Dream Hang at Fame Studio in Muscle Shoals. Let's get this show rolling.
1: Deep breath. <laughs> uh, pre-nam, the we are uh, calm getting before. ready for the big. Yeah, man. You know what? Let's talk about the calm before the storm. Well, first, let's talk about the intro groove because the intro wasn't a groove, it was a
2: soundscape, and yeah. I appreciate it. All right, so this is, I'm saying it's Jacob Lindsay. You say it's what? I say it's Jakob. Jakob. That is if he's not
1: from this country. If he's from the Netherlands or you know Denmark, Sweden, I'd say it's Jakob. All right, well, either way, it's Jacob in my mind. <laughs> it's Jacob until I hear him speak. If he's like, "Yo, what's up?" I'm like, "Hey, how are you doing, Jacob?" Um, but but he says, "How are you?" Then I would say, "What's up, Jakob?"
2: It's a very how is my Dutch, <laughs> very NPR sounding theme music. I dig it. It's like we're getting all Mm -hmm. serious and official here
1: Yeah, (laughs) welcome to the Modern Drummer Podcast with Mike and Mike (laughs) <laughs> uh so anyways what i was gonna say calm before the storm let's just talk calm did you see sugar percussions post today yeah you know i mean it was
2: brilliant first of all he's a good poet that was pretty amazing that was amazing yeah <laughs> absolutely well done jefferson so uh, did you call him and tell him like hey man people are kind of
1: taking this a little bit too seriously or yeah yeah so he said hey man i didn't uh, on his last one he was like hey i've kind of missed your usual interaction and banter and i said well i got like some emails where people mm. were like warning me hey just so you know sugar's coming after you and i was like i was like oh my god you guys i'm like i'm the one that called him he's I coming hired after him. you by building you a snare drum how yeah, dare he that i'm paying him for like i'm like i hired him to build me a snare i said how no it's just a he. joke you know what i th- I, I think uh it's it's the donald trump syndrome once someone in a leadership role dog someone else out or dog someone out it gives everyone else in the world that was on the fence about dogging out, like now i've got the right to do it and they you know they they jump um, on like all right now we're hating on someone let's hate on this person or oh, hate I on didn't that person see that. were they hating on you no 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 just they were warning me just so you know like this guy's he's pretty he's going um, after you hard and i'm like uh no, he's my friend. It was a joke. <laughs> so so anyway, so I told uh, I told Jefferson, I said, you know I I mean I didn't tell him this, but most people probably don't realize, but I started my first business on MySpace. So I've been doing the social media thing since It wasn't called social media. So Mm -hmm. I've seen every kind. I know how everything's going to go before it happens. As soon as I saw Jefferson's first post, I was like, if he does this more than once, it's going to go bad. I already know it will. You can do it once and it's like, oh, cool. We're teasing. We're having some fun. We're having some laughs. And on number two, it's like, yeah, no, I agree. Mike hates staves. Let's get him. It's like, whoa, whoa. Easy (laughs) custom drum builders. Calm the hell down. First of all, I don't hate staves. I just don't think they sound very good. Yeah, you do. You hate them. Come on, let's let it, let's be truthful here. You hate. Them. I don't. No, I think hate is like a word. I've never hit a drum and be like, I want to fight you. I've never hit a drum and thought that. I just hit it and went. Not for me. I definitely have. I will not name names, but I've definitely (laughs) seen a drum that I wanted to beat up. (laughs) Nice. Well, I haven't felt that way about stave drums. I would say so far in my experience, the closest thing I got to really enjoying a stave drum was the one that John from Cherry Hills sent me to demo for the students. Unfortunately, I was an idiot and made a video about that drum on YouTube, and it sold the next week. So he's like, I need that back. i was like, no. And I mean, those are so handmade. He's like, No, they want that one. They heard that one. They saw that one. They want that one. I was like, all right, no problem, man. Um, But that was the first time I was like, yeah, this is close to the sensitivity that I'm looking for. But we've talked about it on the show before. My experience with stave drums were extremely thick, thick shells. I remember even when Gretsch was still owned by Fender, they came out with a stave drum that was like four
2: inches thick. I was like, That was kind of the original, yeah, like shotgun sounding snare drum.
1: Totally, and I I totally get it, and so that's why I contacted Jefferson, was to say, okay, change my mind. Give me an example that I can show my students when they feel the way that I used to feel. Give me the example of that that I can say, no, I totally know what you're going through. I felt the same way, but here's an example of an extremely sensitive snare that you can – be as delicate with as possible and it still has great response and great sensitivity so that's what he's working on right now so i just told him i said okay let's get this one out there let's get everybody to understand
2: we are in this together i hired you to do this all right so that means i need the call out q drums i hate stainless steel drums i hate it prove me wrong (laughs) so whatever you want nice I In particular, think Nicky Moon's
1: 16 inch floor uh, tom is really what I think sucks really bad. Nicky Moon makes ugly symbols that I can't imagine they could possibly sound good, so he should make me four of them. I'm more of a fifteen inch hi hats kind of guy, Nick. So uh so yeah, so but so I'm I'm excited to see where it goes. But all credit goes to Jefferson's
2: poetic creativity. That was amazing. Well you gotta I mean you gotta sense that he was gonna go there eventually. And right. it just it's like okay. I need to end this sooner than later.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, like I said, I've been doing this for a long time. You can do the snark once. Once you do it two times, then people think, oh, there must be some truth in the kidding. You Mm. do it a third time, it's like, oh my God. Now I... So when he hit... Number four, I think that's when people got on board with, like, or started sending me emails warning oh, me, like, man. yo, man, if you see this dude at Nam, we got your back. I'm like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah, he's no. going
2: gonna to give me a snare drum. Man,
1: them yeah. fighting words. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So, but I, I uh, you and I have talked off air. The only scary thing is, I hope I like it. Hey, uh, it would suck to go through all this and be like. Yeah, this is exactly what stave drums sound like. That's why I, would I don't love like them.
2: For the response to be, is like, man, I wish it was just more powerful.
1: <laughs> I wish oh, it had more. Cut. It's God, I can't even breathe next to it. It's so sensitive. <laughs> I walk in the room and
2: the snares start rattling. Uh oh, anyways. Um, oh,
1: so what's man. going on with you,
2: man? Um, I've been doing a lot of uh, diagnostic on my own plane. I, you know, a, a couple of weeks ago, I talked about how I've been counting out loud again. And man, that reveals so many problems. Um, I think yeah. that's why we don't do it because it's like pulling the curtain back. Oh, you think you can do the simplest thing. Try counting out loud while you're doing it. And most yeah. recently, there are two things that I know that they were blind spots, but I didn't want to address them. I have a hard time keeping track of the offbeats when I'm playing sixteenth note triplets. Okay, I just kind of coast through it, and then I realized as I'm counting out loud, and trying to play these. Um, I'm playing like Wilcox solos. and solos. Whenever I get to a passage with, ex- with extended 16th note triplets, I feel like I'm skating above the pulse. Wow. And okay. I think I'm actually rushing the triplets just a little bit. Like I can't ch- keep track of that left hand when it's supposed to land right on the ant. So that's been cool. Hand. I'm having to go super duper slow, and it's back to square one. Mm-hmm. But that was kind of fun. I think I'm going to be finally address that because I know I rush triplets all the time. That's awesome. That was cool. And the other one, which is driving me insane, is if you do offbeat, um, I guess you consider them drags. So if the mm. E and the uh is where you put the accents and you're dragging on the one in the and, tick-a-da, ticka-da, 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 to try to count eighth notes through that, forget about yeah. it. Forget about it. It's just not wow. happening. It's okay. again, if like I'm like roller skating, like, whoa, what's happening here?
1: Yeah, I think that's what the counting reveals is the things that you thought. It's like, no, I can play it. And it's like, yeah, but you really, you're not playing it as with as much internalization of pulse as you think you are. Yeah, no way. Because you actually are abandoning pulse just to be able to play it. Yeah. You have to, like, forget about it. Yeah, it's like holding your breath. Like, exactly. Yeah. I just went through that. So I'm doing uh, some courses on odd groupings. And I would say that odd groupings. I mean, man, that that was probably as much of a breakthrough in my drumming for myself, getting closer to the drummers that I admire than anything besides maybe linear drumming. And I think maybe Odd Groupings came my way via Benny Greb's first DVD uh-huh. as far as, oh, you've categorized it. And then I got to go back in time and find Yoast's teaching on it. And Udo Dahman's teachings. And I was like, okay, so this is something now. What's crazy is it's the most impactful thing on my drumming and my own personal world of of trying to get better. But there's never been anything on Mike'sLessons.com about it because I couldn't find a better way to teach it than the people that have already taught it. And I thought, why don't I just refer you to Yost Nickel or Mm -hmm. to Benny Grab his DVD. So I'm just now, years and years, a decade later, filming my first group of courses on it and this relates to what you're talking about so i did the groupings of 3 and i'm it's a six part course in internalizing threes against the pulse mm-hmm. in grooves fills improvisation pad it starts on the pad just literally just hand to hand alternating strokes anyways now it's time to film the course for fives well everything was fine until it got to playing them on the bass drum with a backbeat uh, mm-hmm. You know, just basic groove, hi hat, and snare. And what I realized is I can do five against four. Like, I can, if the quarter note's there, fine. But if my main pulse is the backbeat of snare on two and four, it's actually now it, it takes a, a full measure of 10, four to cycle all the way back to the beginning. Mm-hmm. Because in 5-4, you're good, but then you land on the snare when you start over with right. the pattern. So it really takes a measure of 10-4. Well, there were some spots in there that I couldn't do. And so I started walking around the house singing fives hmm. while clapping on 2 and 4. I, could, I literally couldn't do it. And so <laughs> I had to sit there. I mean, it was crazy. Like I could, If I went, gah, 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 all good. Yeah. But, all good. I was really, really struggling. And my wife was like, shut up, my babe. You don't understand. This is the future of our business. I can't film this course until I get this down myself. But I love those things because if that's what's going on with me right before I film the course, there's such a good chance that I'm going to have a brilliant idea to teach the students because I just went through it. Mm -hmm. So I know what they're about to physically face and mentally face. And then I can give that to them and say, look. Look, I know you're gonna have trouble with this. Here's how I got through it. And so, you know, I had to, it started with me playing just those kick parts while going one, two, three, Mm -hmm. and then eventually stopping going one, two, and going one, two, and like shortening it. Um, And, you know, we've never really talked about this, but Benny and and a lot of other people after his first DVD really got into the chid thing, finding a short syllable. My problem with that has always been, I actually, when when we start going over the bar line, I get lost. I don't know. I know where I am in reference to the pulse, but I don't know where I am in reference to the time. So mm-hmm. I still do say the numbers. Do you say numbers or do you make a short sound? A
2: sound, uh, both. But either way, it's usually short because I want to... At least at this stage, I'm trying to re- be really cognizant of the attack. Um, and, right. And I mean, the that's placement. the whole point of the yeah. short sound is to get rid of anything that's legato. Yeah. And that goes, for me, goes back to marching band. We were always, we would use chut. That was the, the sound. Sure. Yeah. So we would do that out loud as we were playing. And you could tell when we get to a section when no one really knew how to play it because the chuts would get quiet. <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's Absolutely. when the director would be like, hey, let me hear you. You got to chut right. through it. So I use, I use short sounds. But if I'm trying to kind of phrasing... I just use the number. So it it depends if I'm working on a phrase or if I'm working on like subdivisions for me. Right. Yeah, I mean,
1: I think if I was only working on the placement in reference to the pulse, no problem. But if I'm trying to teach it's a two-bar phrase, I actually won't know where to come out unless I've memorized like the sound of it. But if it's fives and I'm trying to get out in a two-bar phrase and all I'm doing is going... Then I'm already lost right now. Like yeah. I'm like, was that three or four? <laughs> yeah. But if I go one, two, three, four, one, then I know like at yeah. the end, like, and one. Okay,
2: cool, we're out. <laughs> yeah. So Yeah, Anyway, it's it's I think it's super fun to find. I mean it's frustrating as as hell. And there's a couple of other sticking patterns again I realized I thought I had them under control and then I put them onto the beat neck and like twenty percent less accurate like that's not mm. good so I'll, right. I'll, I'll talk about my remedy for that later it's my pick of the week but yeah just finding all these little tiny little things that that are just driving me nuts they've been driving me nuts the triplet thing is i'm glad i finally figured out why i always rush sixteenth note triplets now i just have to figure out how to solve it so you know that's mm. the goal we'll see what happens i think slow Anyone, counting uh, very slowly counting the pulse right. is going to be the key
1: Anyone out there right now riding in the car with a drummer, and you're not a drummer, and you really wish we'd just shut up and talk about something interesting to you? <laughs> How are your dogs? <laughs> oh, bro. Dogs are good, but we have a skunk infestation right mm. now. So I, did I tell you this last week? Like, oh, we've been getting skunked a lot lately? No, your dogs are getting skunked? No, no, our studio. Ugh. So our studio's on the river. So every year there's like kind of skunk season. No big deal. Every once in a while... You know the skunks are down by the river. They do their thing. They spray a little bit, and it reeks when you get into the parking lot. Well, lately, I get to the studio, and it only reeks in my actual studio. What? Yeah. So, so we've got pest control. Com- I mean, I, I'm in. It's not just a standalone building. I'm in a large building with three floors and businesses everywhere. So we think they're in between the first and the second floor, like in the rafters and stuff. Why uh, would they be? Because. Why
2: would they be squirting? <laughs> it's. What is wrong with you? Clean well, it I mean, up, Dawson. They don't just stink, they have to like squ- P. no yeah
1: they they spray they spray my god (laughs) you're a writer find the correct word you just made me throw up in my mouth anyways i don't have like you know it's it's mating season all right there's there's skunk porn being filmed downstairs somewhere (laughs) Uh, so anyway so yeah so i think i don't know i'm not enough of uh of an animal expert to know if there's a difference between them spraying out of defense and fear and then just some sort of mating musk that they rock but <laughs> <God>. it smells <laughs> moving <along. laughs> horrible it smells horrible my you don't understand when well, you've been here you know it's like a drumming day spa you walk in there's candles i walk in i'm like was was there a dr dre party what happened oh Why you don't it- have any windows do you so it's no, like no yeah, none yeah, nothing sucks. all I have is a front door so I have a, a fan outside the front door and I know what skunks smell like I grew up on the river been around it my whole life my dogs get skunked it's all good I'm scared that parents come in with their kids and they're like typical drummer I'm like no 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 that's an actual skunk it's a real skunk You should know the difference. Oh, man. I think parents in Northern California would be like, yeah, cool. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you guys all think. We're just – we're the most unproductive state. We're all high. No. Although I I was highly in favor of that law getting passed because the more that I can get everyone else around me to be lazy – boom through the roof with productivity <laughs> all you amazing drummers out there on instagram please get high and fall asleep and stop getting so freaking good so i can catch up my god <laughs> do whatever so, you need to do
2: talking of something I'm, skunky how about some reggae <laughs> <laughs> i can't even drink my tea
1: <laughs> oh, oh, i love like reggae we scripted <laughs> i know i got married in jamaica so i'm, I'm a fan nice uh all right. That's by the way. That's what makes you a fan of, of reggae. Is if you get married in Jamaica, that's how. That's how you know I it's like real. jerk Chicken yeah. <laughs> <laughs> jerk spices. It's all good. All right. So Tommy, I'll let you go. Last name on this. <clears throat> um, uh, Benedetti. Benedetti uh, did a. He's doing a series of articles for you guys on reggae 101, the basic groove. So stepper, rocker, one drop.
2: Yes, and he's in the band John Brown's Body. If you're familiar with them, so it's a you know a East Coast-based reggae-style band. Uh, so he focuses on the groove called the Steppers beat. Um, so I thought we could talk about that, but also for anyone who's going to be gigging and playing in cover bands, I think there are three three reggae beats you have to be fluent with. So if someone says play a reggae, you don't automatically go into your one reggae beat. Right, and that's the scary thing
1: about this Is we always think that Every style And when I say we, I just mean As you're coming up in the drums You think that every style in the world has one beat Except for American rock It's like, oh yeah, we have a thousand variations But (laughs) there's only one bossa nova There's (laughs) (laughs) one reggae beat, there's one samba And it's like, no, no, those are genres of music There's a lot of variation Here's the danger (sighs) From the outside looking in I'm going to tell you guys right now uh, you can search Mike'sLessons.com for any reggae material and you will find none because mm. I don't want to teach stuff that I can't even – that I've never had any experience doing. And I've never – I mean, I, I don't count having to do Sublime covers as being like <laughs> a deep, true reggae drummer. So uh, – so I really have no experience in this, and I'm also not a fan of the music, and I don't mean I'm not a fan, I just mean I'm not somebody that listens to a lot of reggae, so I'm going to have Mike as the expert here, <clears throat> as much as he can be, and I will be the ignorant drum fool. My, <laughs> my, my vibe, just from doing the stepper thing, Like I literally went through his whole article, yep. played all of it, hands and knees, and then I went to the audio examples. What I think the trap is is that the visual notation is so freaking simple, yet the feel of these grooves is. I mean, I was like, "That's going to take me six months to get that feel." Yeah. But I've been able to play this beat since I was ten years old.
2: Yeah, it's a sort of in-between swing, straight, and it's a lot of like slight accents on the off beat. There's a lot of subtlety right. to this. It's it's my and favorite genre because it's it's there's it's almost like. A, like bebop, where it, there's so many subtleties to it that you, you can't transcribe it. You have to like live it.
1: Well, and I once again, outside looking in. So please, reggae guys, don't roast me for this. I really don't know much. But when I was listening to this stuff, I was shocked at how much I could hear where we would have gotten the D'Angelo Questlove mm. vibe from because of how how many times. Maybe a certain instrument in the band was not swinging while the drummer was, or maybe the delay was fighting against the cross-stick part, like the guitar's delay would fight against the cross-stick and make these really cool swung versus
2: straight rhythms. Yeah. I mean, there's a little bit of a kind of uh, under-explained music history if you think about hip-hop. Largely, most people think it started in the Bronx. Well, what's one of the primary populations in the Bronx? It's Jamaicans. So hip hop music and from my research and from some experts that have kind of dug into it, it kind of came out of dance hall Jamaican music. So that's why a lot of it has that sort of half swung, half straight feel. Yeah, it was
1: uh, something that immediately, like I said, the drum teacher in me looked at the notation. I was like, oh, I'm way better at reggae than I thought. I can do this. Then I pressed play on uh, uh, Plastic Smile with Sly Dunbar on drums. And I was like, no, I I really couldn't do that. I mean, I'd really have to, I'll I'll use Will Kennedy's term, I'd have to fellowship with it. Yeah, it's definitely a style you can't take. Right. And I think maybe that's why I've never gotten into it is because I know that I can't fake it. And it's almost been like tabla. Like, yes, I want to learn tabla one day, but I'm actually going to have to devote like a decade to Mm -hmm. just become a beginner at it. And I kind of feel like with this, unless I'm actually going to start gigging with a reggae group, I don't know if I want to get into it. But but this article actually gave me like a lot of hope visually seeing it and going, okay, now I know what the mystery is. But I think the mystery was that there was this feel that I would hear, you know, like when we do our 21 drums camp, Mark's, Mark Juliana is a huge reggae fan. And so he'll play a lot of stuff and it really sounded very complicated to me. It Mm -hmm. didn't sound simple. And then when I see it written out and now I can take this notation and the audio example and I'm like, Oh wow, that is okay. That is literally (laughs) like a Brazilian clave being played on the cross stick with quarter notes on the
2: bass and eights on the hi-hat. And yeah, just a slight swing feel. So there's, um, I was fortunate to to work with Gil Sharon when he did his uh, DVD on Jamaican drumming. And I did all the transcriptions, so I got to really kind of dig into each beat. And he breaks okay. it down. I mean, he goes through like the whole history, starting with Ska and Naya Bingy and all that. But, That's an incredible DVD, by yeah, the way. But when you get into the actual reggae section, he explains it as essentially three grooves. And it's all hinging on what does the bass drum do. So there's the one drop... Which is one I think most of us think What's a reggae beat It's That's probably the, the one beat. drop Where the right. rim click and the bass drum are on beat 3 If you're in a cut time kind of a feel Right That's kind of the most typical If someone says reggae But not always If you're playing in like a pop cover band And they say give me a reggae feel A one drop might be a little bit too authentic right. And sometimes yeah. they actually mean The stepper's beat Which for my, my experience means Play the bass drum on all four, four notes That's the only difference. So now the bass drum is playing four on the floor. The rim click is still primarily hitting on three, but it can do a lot of syncopated stuff around that. And And would
1: you say that pushing the upbeat on the hi-hats is part of it, or is that just a, sometimes it happens, sometimes it doesn't? I think
2: it's always there. I think your pulse, yeah, the pulse is always the upbeat. Okay.
1: Like your, your and emphasis. so your right hand is kind of emphasizing what generally the guitar is doing, which
2: yep. is emphasizing the upbeats. Yep. So okay. I just programmed some audio. So these are real simple versions, like the most basic version. Let's do the, the one drop first. Right, it's as basic as it gets, but you can hear that I just put a little bit more velocity on the would be B2 or the ands, depending on how you count it. Right. We're counting it on B2 because the rim click and bass drum is hitting on three. So one, two, click, four. So that's like the most basic one drop. So if you do nothing but now make the bass drum play all four quarter notes, it'll give you the steppers feel. So let's check that out.
1: Okay, so something that jumps out to me right away, and I've heard this happen so many times while tracking, but it's funny. I mean, I know you programmed these, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Able so to this line. is not – right. So these, this is programmed, and still that accent with – on the – let's call it two and four, that actually changes the tone of the bass drum. Mm-hmm. But we know that it doesn't change the tone of the bass drum. It can't. The bass drum was a sample. Yeah. but. By adding in that extra volume, it even the bass drum gets higher pitched for that little yeah. section, which and is I, really
2: cool. And I experimented with you know, how far back can I put the rim click? So that's something if you never programmed before, it's a good kind of way to to experiment with like flamming. How how close can you get two notes together? When does it become a wider feel? When does it just become like two separate notes? So right. in those two examples, the rim click is nudge back maybe Five milliseconds or something, so it's, it just makes it a thicker sounding backbeat without it being an obvious like flam thing. Okay,
1: so if we were, and I don't want to go in. This is probably a. Don't worry, I'll spit it out. This is. a separate topic. Don't take your time. Man. <laughs> yeah. This is a separate topic for the future, which is playing behind the beat, playing ahead of the beat, but in a full blown digital sense, you have hi hat and bass drum flawless to the to the quantized grid. Yep. And then you... So something has to be in time for something to be behind
2: the yep. groove, right? The rim click okay. is the only thing that's not perfectly aligned with the grid. So it's not like the groove slows down on nope. beat three. It's all 120. All three of these are exactly 120. The hi-hat and right. bass drum are right on the beat. The rim click is just nudged back.
1: All so, right. So the
2: third groove is the rocker. Yeah, now this would be what I consider like the modern reggae. So it's really a combination of funk with that upbeat reggae feel. So it's just kick on one, snare on three, and that's called the rockers. I mean, it's like the drum beat number one that we all learn, but the feel is what that feel like for 200,027.
1: <laughs> Nine. I'm, I'm telling, there's no way while you're driving in your car or on your morning jog right now that if you haven't tried this, you don't know what I'm talking about. Like, there's no way that you can even predict how much difference there is between what you think is a classic standard pop rock beat and that groove right there until you try it and then you come out of a fill and then you have to remind yourself oh yeah the hi-hats it's it's really a different way of doing things to emphasize the upbeat or in this case the two and the four
2: than what we've been taught as pop rock funk drummers yeah and i can tell you i'm looking at the file right now so the hi-hat on the downbeats is hitting at 95 velocity 92 and then on the off beats it is a hundred so you're only talking about like maybe five to ten dynamic bump i mean it's barely anything i think of it more of a timbre thing so you just kind of push a little bit more rather than hit it harder it's just a push i think it
1: just comes down to where do you personally feel it like even if you tried to physically play that and emphasize the two and the four if you still feel the music on the on the yeah, one the and the three beat, or on yeah. the downbeats, it, it's still going to come through. Yeah. And I, I've done that so many times where I've seen someone play, let's say let's say rock, and I'd be like, "That is definitely a jazz drummer. Like he mm. cannot stop feeling everything on the upbeats because right. he's so used to putting his left foot on the upbeats and." And uh, you know, and vice versa. You've definitely you can tell when a rock drummer is playing jazz, and you're like, dude, you're totally proficient. You just don't feel this music the way yeah. it's felt. It's because you probably heavy. don't listen to yeah. it, yeah. right? Ding, jink, ding, jink, <laughs> jink, ding, 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 ding. It's like yeah, yeah, which yeah. is That's why I swing.
2: love reggae because it's kind of both. You're getting yeah the, the swing of jazz and the heavy pocket of funk and rock. So if you can mm. get both those together, I think you can you can. Then go further into jazz, further into rock And and Gil even, when I first Interviewed him, he said like Reggae is his ground zero Like the first style of music I really learned was reggae And I feel like that opened me up to like Bebop, because reggae comes Ska kind of comes from bebop And also funk and hip hop because The later reggae stuff So it's a good study I recommend um, everyone Play along to every track on Bob Marley's Legend record, and you'll kind of get All the, everything there that's all a good
1: mix well everyone check out Tommy Benedetti's article Reggae 101 The Steppers Beat and like uh, we said so in future articles he's going to keep
2: doing these is this going to be a series no this was just a one time Reggae 101 piece maybe he'll do another one but I'm not sure All right. Well, if he's listening right now And he
1: got excited when I said that Then he should do more (laughs) If he heard that and he's like Hell no I I already gave you one, what more do you want, MD? Then you're off the hook Um, So yeah, check that out And I think by visually seeing it And then also the great thing is at the bottom of the article He gives you audio examples That you can just pull up on Spotify or iTunes And you can actually hear Like literally the exact grooves he's teaching and, And that's when you can start connecting the dots between how simple the notation looks and how
2: complicated the feel is. Yeah, take it. All right, so let's do um, word from Dream Symbols. They um, again, it's they want to make sure everyone who's in the Muscle Shoals, Alabama area, you know that February 9th they are going to be there at Fame Studios. So go hang out with them. They're bringing Scott Pilgrim down to play demo, record a bunch of stuff. Everything they bring is going to be for sale. Um, so yeah, that's Nashville, Memphis, Atlanta, Birmingham. Anyone who's anywhere near Muscle Shoals, Alabama, go check them out. February ninth, go to Dreams' uh, Facebook page, and they have an event set up for that. You can RSVP and get the address and all of that. So that's that. And shift into our featured artist, who is a dream, a recent dream artist. Oh, really? Yeah. Sam Fogarino of Interpol, yeah, he plays Dream Symbols now, and there's a good video on Dreams uh, YouTube page where he kind of explains why and how he made the switch, and it's totally was influenced by what he needed for his band, Interpol, which is kind of neat. awesome. Well, I remember Interpol; they were
1: the hip artsy band when I was still touring. I mean, they've been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. But when I was touring, so there was obviously the grunge era that we all lived through. And then there was just music for a while, but there wasn't this era. And I remember when Interpol kind of came on the scene and we we would see them kind of in passing. Like, oh, Interpol's playing this venue tonight and you guys are over at that venue. Mm-hmm. And I remember they, to me, were the post-grunge era of, okay, now it's artists making Indie rock music but on a very artistic level not a let's sell as many albums as possible level and I remember they kind of fit into me at the time with Flaming Lips Modest Mouse Year mm-hmm. of the Rabbit Failure and I was I mean I just massively respected them because it was kind of music that you could zone out to, almost like what Death Cab is now at the time, where I could zone out to it, but I could also find the talent inside of it.
2: Yeah, definitely a unique sound. They came up, um, gosh, just going 22 years ago. That's unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, They've been around for 22 years. But yeah, they were part of that that downtown New York scene with uh, the Strokes and the National, where it kind of brought back this this kind of like... um, New Wave Joy Division kind of uh like aesthetic, kind of cold. Okay. I think it's kind of industrial cold kind of rock and in all the good mm-hmm. ways for me. Like yeah. I I love the kind of mechanical sounding rock where it's humans playing as you know, like pistons in a machine. That's I really dig that sound. Right. And I think they kind of well, embodied that. Absolutely. But the the new album
1: is just as raw as it gets Mm -hmm. and he talks about that in the article just about how how much went into making it that raw but
2: uh and and it starts with recording on tape yeah the new album is called marauder uh it just came out a few months ago and it's the first one in a few years and yeah this is the first time that they went 100 percent analog it's like totally against what you think Interpol, at least for me, the history of Interpol, I think there's got to be some kind of digital aspect of, of the sound, but they went 100% analog, and I think it, w- it was very successful. The record is really warm, but still interesting and sounding.
1: Yeah, and I think that he makes some good points in the article about they've used analog in the past as almost a type of preamp like let's just record it to tape so we have that warmth and then we'll dump it all into pro tools mm-hmm. and, but it's been tracked to tape well now the one thing that he said about recording to tape this time was that it was all done on tape and edited on tape so it takes the laziness out of your session you have to know what yeah. you're doing we we're literally <laughs> gonna press record on a two inch reel of tape <laughs> you know <laughs> Or a reel of two-inch tape, and here we go. And if you if we have to razor blade this thing up six thousand times, it's going to be pretty annoying. You know, you want to get at least full parts, if not a full take. Yeah,
2: but I mean, it's such a shift in mentality that I think we've kind of forgotten that's the way you had to do it. You know, even my earliest session work was in the mid '90s, and it was still ADAT. So it was, I mean, it was digital. Right. It wasn't like a tape machine was running. Right. So we've been so far removed from the. You know, like that's just the way you do it. You turn tapes on, you record and you play the whole song. You don't go back and punch in. You just do well, it. Well, I
1: mean, just think right now. I mean, you you track a lot and you put in a ton of prep. But if somebody told you, OK, next week, here's the here's the files and next week we're doing this session. But it's all to tape. I, I would assume even your obsessive preparation would take on a whole new level of obsession, knowing we need you to get a full take. Yeah, I would.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think it especially for bands I mean you have to be rehearsed there's no um, like a lot of the stuff I do now even if I'm playing with other people in the room it's like okay the bass player we know he's going to go back and redo his parts we know the rhythm guitar it really just becomes drums Like, can you get a good drum take because we don't want to spend all day editing the drums which is cool I, I, I appreciate that but the problem with that is it doesn't give me a chance to sit with any kind of feel, like establish any kind of like, where's the bass sitting and where am I going to sit? Like, it's like I have to just play to the click, which isn't nearly as like real. Um, right. So I think when if you're tracking the tape, it, it's I, mean, I, need to, I wish I could do more of it just to play with real players and know that you're going for your take. You're just not a backing track for me. And I'm right. going for my yeah, take. Yeah, yeah. So we have to create the right vibe right now. Wow. I guess you could still do that with Pro Tools. It's just, it's so easy. Like, eh, can we just redo the bass? Or can we get another bass player to overdub the the final track? I think a
1: lot of bands, especially more local bands, on their first time tracking, I think a lot of bands do try that on takes one and two. And Mm -hmm. then the producer's like, if you guys want, you could just come in here in the control room. (laughs) (laughs) Jam along with him, you know, or whatever, and we'll just scratch track this. And once we get a decent scratch track, then the drummer can try the song 96 more times. (laughs) And I mean, you've seen those, like, you know, the producer sheets where it says V1, C1, and they're just checking off, like, okay, we finally got our verse. Now let's get our chorus. And now we got it. And then it's like, okay, this is the opposite. This is let's track it like it used to be tracked. And so I think it's a really cool thing. There's another thing he said. uh, Um, He was asked, "How do you feel about playing to a click?" And his first answer was, "The click is my homeboy." Uh, (laughs) And uh, so his his full response was, "I think it's a good test for using a, uh, or I think a good test for using a click is playing the song live. If a song's personality comes off." Comes off while you're governed to the click, it's great. And that, and it's meant to be. But if the song seems to suffer or feel really stiff, then forget it and allow the, those fluctuations to happen. So what he's talking about is it's okay if not every song
2: is meant to be on the click. Some songs just aren't. Yeah, but see, that's the that's the the tough spot like is it, it does it feel bad because you can't play to it or does it feel bad because it needs to actually go up and down Breathe. a little bit that's yeah, i in. think i mean that's i think they're they're 22 years into their career and yeah. they're, they're finally cool with like i think we got our vibe you know our our right. feel is going to be pretty tight so we can maybe not use a click this time yeah
1: you have to be careful to not allow that to be the excuse for the 18 year old band or 18 year olds that just got in their band they're like yeah I don't want to play to a click because this song needs to breathe. It's like, no, you rush and drag really bad. <laughs> yeah, it's a very big difference. <laughs> yeah, I think you have to listen back to the result. You can't judge how it felt when you were doing it. You have to listen back to the result. Um, now, I, even though I've been familiar with the band for a very long time, um, I don't know. This is one of those bands
2: where I didn't know who the players were. Has Sam always been the drummer? No, and this is the interesting thing. So the first three years, they had a different drummer, and it um, his name was Greg. Greg uh, Druddy, I think. So Sam came in in 2000, so really right when they okay. when they kind of so broke they, through. So he's been the right. drummer, for, I think, as long as anyone who's been outside of the downtown New York scene would, would know. Gotcha. Well, I mean, his playing on the new album
1: i think is one of those things that gives the rock drummer like a good vibe of like okay playing drums natural drums getting natural drum tones and just playing for the song is still
2: plenty well and alive yeah I and he's got good. his own feel it's it's, it's a for little sure. i mean that's he's a definitely a band drummer and i think he hasn't um He hasn't lost his identity, which could be a little bit rough around the edges. You know, I'm getting a lot of producers that, when I send them tracks, are like, "Can you just like make it sound more like a garage band drummer? Like, I don't want it to be so studio drummer style." And he's been able to maintain some of that. I think where obviously he's he's very good at the instrument, but the band has its own feel, and he plays the drums in a way that gives the band that's kind of kind of strict up and down kind of feel that I really dig. Yeah, I mean,
1: you know that when we push the envelope so hard on quantizers, hmm, Yep. I'll bad. just take some time. <laughs> yep. uh, quantizers. z. Mm. Exactly. So when you're quantizing so much and everything is so Britney Spears flawless all the time, there's always going to be the the pushback on that, which mm-hmm. is like, okay, can we have some feel? I, you know, if, if I was a producer at some point, I would just be so sick of everything being so flawless, having no variation in snare tone for the whole entire song. Yeah. And then I would start to crave, like, can I get a human being in here that just, like you said, like, I imagine it must have been a pure joy for Butch Vig. Was it Butch Vig that did uh the Nevermind, My mm-hmm. Nirvana? yeah. I'm sure, just recording Dave Grohl, where it's like this dude is just a flat-out beast. Yeah. Um, but there's a lot of humanity in those drum parts. You know, that's that's got to be some cool stuff. So, um, I think Sam really embodies that. This morning, I was
2: even thinking like, there's a difference. Like, I love '80s kind of production. I love it, but I hate current pop production. And in in, oh, wow. in some ways, you would say they're the same because everything is like very programmed and electronic, but I think there's a very different feel between machines operating in an analog world versus taking human beings and digitizing them, taking mm. all the breath out of it. So like having drum machines and drummers playing over drum machines and programmed synth parts, they have to be locked at like this kind of sort of grid, but not, not like airtight where if you, play drums and grid it it's airtight and it doesn't sound there's like no life to it at all it's a totally different thing well i think that
1: that's why i've always really held phil collins in such regard because i was young when i saw an interview with them when they were asking in the air tonight why'd you use a drum machine you're a drummer mm mm-hmm. It's three minutes and 20-something seconds before the first actual drum comes in. And his response was, because that machine is doing something I can't do, I my ADD will kick in. That drum machine is relentless. So he used the drum machine for its mechanical prowess, that the fact yeah. that it will just do that. And he was saying, I, so I see that to me is the best reason to go digital or something. It's like, no, I really actually can't do that um, and I can't be that flawless. And I want that relentless, non breathing thing to create this sense of just death. And, you know, he's talking about some guy drowning in the water. Yeah. That drum machine's perfect for that. Yeah. And then when it all kicks in with the real drums, the life shows up and there's a change uh, emotionally in the song. And so I think that, I mean, Nine Inch Nails has proved that you can have. Great stuff be programmed and have tons of life, but it's you just have to know what you're doing. I mean, Trent respects the technology so much. Yes, yeah, it's, it's doing it unreal. for
2: for a purpose rather than to make it perfect. Like that's right. like I hate modern production when you can when there is no like the sound of a bass guitar and a bass drum hitting in perfect unison is so lifeless. It's just so lifeless. And why right. every pop record and modern country record has to have that all the life and those little tiny little and we're talking like barely perceivable discrepancies in timing like do you have to squeeze them all out like right. <laughs> every single one of them and yes Sam we're still talking about you. This is your feature. <laughs> but and I think you kind this of the first time listening that. to our
1: Yeah, if this is your first time listening to our podcast, this is where we go <laughs> with things is someone is doing something that triggers us to go like why isn't this
2: done more often. Yeah, I mean they're trying to play in a very mechanical way but they but it's impossible because they're human beings and that is what I love about it. It's like they're trying to play to like pistons in a machine but it'll never be 100 percent accurate because they're humans And right. that's what i like that kind of rub that that discrepancy whereas they could have gritted it out and sucked all the air out of it and it'd be this perfect sounding record but ugh, i don't want that no i'm with you i'm absolutely with you so check out
1: uh, what's the new album by interpol called marauder check out marauder and
2: that's sam fogarino on drums Dig it! What time is it now? We are at oh time to listen to some cymbals. It's gear, bro. <laughs>
1: uh, so I don't think that I've given this company enough of a chance. Until I heard this set of cymbals, I was like, man, I'm going to go out of my way to head to their booth when I'm at Nam this week.
2: Yeah. So Amidia Symbols is a Turkish company. They um, but they have I don't know if it'd be, let me call it would be they're like franchises or distributors or whatever. Like there's a US. Company owner, and he's actually in New Jersey. Okay. So he actually orders kind of the things that he wants for his market in the US. Um, so, gotcha. So the media, um, I'm pretty sure they make symbols for a number of other companies as well. They're okay. like one sure. of the providers of the handmade Turkish symbols. So the symbols that I got to review. Are there Jazz Legend series and the Vision series? The Jazz Legend series is exactly what you would expect from a Turkish cymbal company. It's absolutely, you know, got the old school lathing and hand hammering, and it's just real kind of buttery and warm and not too trashy and just very musical, pleasing sounding cymbals. The Vision series, they did a little bit of extra hammering to kind of trashy them up a little bit, but they're not full okay. on, like, funky, crazy dry. They're still sound like turkish cymbals with a little bit of dissonance in the sustain awesome do you want to give the jazz legend series a listen yeah so this um what did i get um i have 14 inch hi-hats, 22 inch rides uh one 22 inch ride and then 16 17 and 18 inch crashes this is the jazz legend series
1: So right when I pressed play on that video, that's when I said, you know what? I've seen these, but because we don't have a lot of dealers, I mean, I live in a small town anyways, so I haven't seen them in person. Really, you only get to see them maybe in Modern Drummer Magazine or at NAMM, and they all kind of blend together sometimes because you're like, wait, I don't remember, is that a high-end company or is that entry-level stuff? But when I heard these, I was like, oh my gosh, I
2: mean, this this is up there with the big boys. Yeah, I mean, they're... You know, they're they're one of the top foundries in Turkey and and they know what they're doing. So those have a real kind of crystalline sound that I I mean these were they're called jazz legend. I mean I think kind of sums it up. They sound like legendary jazz. <laughs> <almost>. mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> they're gorgeous. But they also have a little bit more punch than than like a really old K or something would have. Pretty awesome. And these are all B twenty, I'm assuming? Um you know what? I don't know if it's B20 or B25. I'm not sure what they actually use. They might okay. they might say B20, but it might be a little bit extra B25. I'm not sure. It, it might be s- a little extra. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, you know, the jury's out on what the actual formula for the the Turkish bronze, actually. Do you is. think some guy just walks
1: by the vat of, uh, of molten <laughs> metal and just throws in a little extra tin? He's Look. like, be 20.2. If you had the golden formula for something... I wouldn't tell
2: anybody. <laughs> I mean, come on. Do you,
1: I, I can promise you that I wouldn't tell anybody because uh, I was doing that New Zealand podcast. He's like, so what's next for you in 2019? I'm like, you know, just keep on keeping on. I'm like, are you crazy? I'm not about to tell all the... T- Online drum teachers out there, what's next? Well, let me tell you what I'm about to do. Uh, so yeah, drum so covers. I, I B20ish. B20ish. Yeah, <laughs> they're bronze. They're high end bronze. And <laughs> <laughs> Come to Nam and check out our new bronze cymbals.
2: <laughs> All right. So the Vision series. Yeah. So they they actually suggested I check these out because they thought it would fit within my kind of electronic acoustic hybrid stuff. Okay um, So it's a bigger set It's 15 inch hi hats 19 inch crash And a 22 inch ride So, for me, it was like they were trashier, but not. But they were less washy. So they were tighter and just a little bit more dissonant sounding.
1: And these are also. I'm assuming these are also high end symbols, same kind of yeah. price range. Yeah, I probably. don't think I don't think a media makes any like budget quality. Stuff. They just make great. Okay. Yeah. So, so in the I don't even know. Would you consider this a boutique symbol company? Even though they probably numbers wise make enough symbols for everyone yeah. in the world? Uh, I mean I
2: think it's just availability. That's why yeah. I wanted to make sure that everyone was aware that the there is a distributor in the United States and he's in New Jersey. So if you're on the East Coast, you can very easily get your hands on these if you just reach out to them directly. I think they also have a distributor in the UK maybe. Um, so you just have to find your local distributor and and see what they got. Uh, their their catalog is massive. It's like overwhelming the amount of stuff they offer. Uh but these really two cool stuff man. The Jazz Legend I think is is the you know the competitor for the the K, the old K, the holy grail kind of symbol. Mm. The Vision series for me was the you know you want something a little bit funkier but not full on dry like right. complex. It's just a little bit funkier but can also cut a little bit harder um you know in more contemporary styles. Like the the Jazz Legend I would I wouldn't take to a rock gig. They just wouldn't they wouldn't hold up Got it But divisions I think Pretty cool they stuff would.
1: Yeah well They'll definitely be At Nam this year So check them out At booth 7243 Dang Look You just that. called that up <laughs> Boom
2: Boom I'm you just go, trying to help uh, People out. Talk to Dominic And tell him You listen to the show And you're there To check out Some symbols If you're at Nam. Yeah I'm excited To check those out Alright let's get into Some listener questions Alright we have Two audio questions So let's start right. with um, This is Robin Stone It's Robine. I'm just kidding.
3: kidding.
0: (laughs) Hey guys, it's uh, Robin here from Australia. Um, Two questions, one more for Mike Dawson probably. As you have a lot of gear coming in and out of your hands, how long will a piece of new gear or equipment inspire you on average? Like if you get a new snare and you're like, oh wow, this sounds amazing, how long do you play it? How many days, weeks, or something before it's like, oh yeah, I'm done with that? Um, Just interesting to see, you know, gear inspiring you versus, you know, other musicians and other music inspiring you and the differences between the two. Um, And the other question is, uh, what creates a drummer's signature sound? Because you'll have people with endless vocabulary and can play absolutely everything and they have a signature sound and you can pick them. And then you'll have a rock drummer That can play four grooves and three fills but he still has signature sound and you can pick it so how does that work (laughs) good luck answering these uh and uh, keep up the great work cheers
2: okay so the first part of that um how long does it take for me to kind of get bored with something i think or lose inspiration it's it's almost instantaneous whether something inspires me or not at this point there's only been a few cases where a piece of gear would come in, and I'd be a little lukewarm, and then a week later I'm like, damn, what was I missing? This is amazing. That very rarely happens. It's usually within the first 10 minutes. I'm like, okay, this is not for me, or like, I want to buy it. It's it's usually one of the two things. Like, Sounds good, not for me, or I need to keep this. <laughs> Are you at a place where you can completely
1: forego... The visual aspect, like even if it's something where you're like, I would never, I don't visualize like this at all. But I don't, can you not care and just care about
2: the sound, or is it a combo platter? That's a good question. I think um, no, I don't finish and, and look of it. I don't care about, but sizes, like I will, I just won't ever want to buy a 20 inch deep bass drum because I just don't want to carry it. Um, but gotcha. like the finish, yeah, i don't I don't care about that at all at this point. If it sounds good, then that's all I care about because chances are I'm not going to take it out on a gig anyway. It's probably going to be a studio piece. I have okay. my stu- my gigging gear is kind of established, and I rarely kind of rope in some new boutique-y piece into that sure. fold. <laughs> right. But, yeah, okay. it's kind of instantaneous. I kind of know right away, like, if there's something special here that I've never heard before, or it's intriguing, or, like, yeah, it sounds good, or, and it's, I just don't want it. That <laughs> <Right. laughs> happens pretty quickly. Yeah, and I think it's, it's one of those things where...
1: If it's real, you know it's real. Because And the way I know it's real is I got that second prototype from Gretsch uh, a few weeks ago. Mm-hmm. And when I walk into my lobby, I have 16 of the most gorgeous, most high-end snare drums in the world sitting on a shelf right when I walk in the door. And I used to rotate out all the time. I'd walk in I'd be like, oh, yeah, I haven't played the Black Beauty in a while mm-hmm. or I haven't played the Danette in a while. And I have not even... Come close to touching another snare drum since I got this thing, mm. but it wasn't a choice. It has nothing to do with it being a Gretsch. It's been the most enjoyable drum to play that's getting me, I'm not frustrated with it. Yeah, that's yeah, really, yeah. I'm not even looking to love it. I'm looking to not dislike it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, now on the second part of his question, that's something that I think we could have an entire piece about, which is did the drum have a signature sound or was it the player? Because you said early on in this whole series that you played Steve Jordan's snare
2: and it did not sound like Steve Jordan (laughs) until he played it. Yeah, my my opinion on that would be everyone has a signature sound, which is whether or not they've consciously chosen it or or had the aesthetic to kind of shape it or it's it's a signature sound that people like. I think everyone has their own sound. It's just, did they actually work on it to, to make it, sound like a brand or, or a, a distinct sound or did it just naturally they play the way they play but it just so happens that they hit the hi-hat ten times harder than the snare drum well that Whatever, signature yeah. sound is just not good for anyone but it's right. still your signature sound yeah, well, I was showing a student – I had a
1: private lesson yesterday with a student, and I was showing him – I asked him, I said, who are you into these days? By the way, this student's very, very advanced, but I've been, I been—I used to teach him when he was a kid, haven't taught him in a few years, came back. Now he's like 24. The dude can play his butt off. And he was just saying, I'm, I've been buried in rock bands, and I want to get back into drumming, drumming. And I said, okay, well, who are you into right now? He said, uh, not really anyone. I'm just into styles. So we kind of narrowed it down to he's into the perfect version of rock and the perfect version of like modern rock and modern country. And so I showed him Shannon Forrest. Mm I said, I think maybe you'll really dig this guy. This guy is on that Picaro level, uh, but he's doing it right now. The reason I'm bringing that up is because there was I don't know if it was a reverb or Sweetwater It was someone else's video that he was in And it was clearly like just room mics There was no mics on the kit Mm -hmm. It still somehow sounded like he was in a studio somewhere Yeah, yeah it was just the way he plays. And I was like, I'm like, damn, there's no mics anywhere near him. Yeah, he's, and yeah, there was like exactly. compression on the snare, you know. And I'm not saying they couldn't have mixed the room mics, but it sounded like him. I clicked on like six different YouTube videos, and they almost
2: all sounded the same. And none of them had the same mics. None of them had the same drums. Yeah, yeah, that's that's just. So I guess that kind of reinforces that the idea of if if you have a sound in mind then you're going to create it then it's going to become your signature sound if you don't know what you want to sound like then you're going to sound kind of anonymous no matter the gear is going to determine what you sound like i agree yeah uh, absolutely so all right okay so we've got a print question here from tony boyd um says, I was delving back into the past looking at your podcast when recording drums, and in the podcast that dealt with recording with two mics, you said you loved the sound but found things got a little lost in the mix with other instruments. So my question is, could this be remedied with dedicated kick and snare mics and just using the single overhead, or would you want or need close mics on the toms as well?
1: Now, I think when he says other instruments, he's not talking about other instruments inside the kit. I think he
2: means guitar, bass, vocals. Yeah, I think that's what we were saying. Because like that's what guitar, we were Yeah, keyboards, guitar, vocal, then all of a sudden the, the mix gets a little thin. Right. All right, so what are your thoughts on this? Um, I never feel a need to put mics on the toms unless the toms are featured part of the track, so... You know, if I'm going to hit the floor tom once in a song and it's not like a big dramatic thing, then I don't necessarily feel like I need that there. The overhead will right. get it. And also knowing that I don't have a mic on that tom and I'm only going to hit it once in a song, I'm going to hit it hard enough to know that it puts enough sound out to cut through the mix. So right. I think you can get a, yeah. a kick, snare, one overhead, you can get an amazing sound. Or, you know, like a Glenn John setup with an overhead over the kit, overhead over the floor tom, and then one in front of the bass drum. The thing is, you got to know how to play with a good sound, a good balanced sound in order for that to work.
1: And I think you also, even in the kick snare overhead, if you go 80%, like let's say you turn your kick and your snare to eight, and then you just subtly bring in the overheads to get this really... Cool kick snare and overhead sound That's when you'll notice the toms missing If you go the other route And the overhead is primarily your drum mic And then you bring in the kick and snare to support it The toms will fit in just fine Yeah the problem is when you go super direct kick, super direct snare, where they're almost like samples, and then you have a little bit of cymbal bleed, yeah, your cymbals are going to sound like they're not there because
2: they're not getting picked up by the kick or snare. Yeah, and that's, that's all the mentality of how are you treating the microphones. Is the overhead yes. a cymbal mic, or is the overhead a drum set mic? If you think of it as a drum set mic, then you're going to start your mix there and you're going to make sure everything is full in the overhead first, which mic placement is going to affect that if your floor tom is getting lost and just turn the capsule so it aims at your floor tom a little, a little bit. And there's little <laughs> yeah. things you can do. Um, It takes a lot of experimentation. So, yeah, I don't default to having 16 mics open unless I know I'm going to be using all that, all those sounds. Mm, Got it. Um, Second part of
1: the question is, uh, for me, it says, I know... For quite a while, his, uh, Mike's kit has been a 2012 14. What brought about this switch from 22 10 16? I have used the 22 10 16 for a long time, using the 10 for ease of positioning, but I've recently moved to a 12 for more grunt out of the rack tom. Love the podcast and usually get to listen in the early hours of Saturday in Sydney, Australia. All right, dude, we're going, we're doing. Good in Australia. Yeah. <laughs> I can't wait to get my I, I, I need to do some clinics there because I love when they when I'm doing sound
2: check and they go, Snah and I'm like, love it. <laughs> there it's we great. go. Mike and Mike yeah. Podcast Clinic Tour. We're gonna do nothing but Australia New, Ooh, New Zealand. Count me in someone book it. Count someone book in.
1: it. <laughs> Please. Okay, so why did I move away from the twenty two ten sixteen? Uh there was a time where I've, I'd always heard about, and this is just from reading Modern Drummer when I was a kid, I'd always heard about people talking about their sound. And I honestly, <laughs> I don't know how many times I have to repeat this, but I'm a slow learner. So I really <laughs> didn't know what the hell they were talking about. Honestly, I just kind of thought, well, I thought I, I always saw drums as like a step-up thing where you've got your Pearl Export, so eventually you want a Pearl Sessions. And then when you get your Pearl Sessions, you need to get a Pearl Masters. And you keep stepping up, uh-huh. and you go from... Z- you know Sabian B-8s to someday you're going to have AAXs, mm-hmm. and you just keep stepping up. And so I I really kind of thought your sound was where you were financially stuck at at that point in your life.
0: <laughs> and it's like, well, that yeah, makes that's sense. my sound. Yeah, that makes
1: sense. <laughs> so, so that's kind of how I saw it until I started getting into drummers. And keep in mind, I wasn't into drummers that were about sound. Once I started getting into Jim Keltner, uh, I, I would say Benny Greb was a huge... Mm-hmm window into that for me as well I realized what sound was and then I looked at my kit with my flawless cymbals and my expensive drum set and 1610 or 221610 And I asked myself, why am I playing that? And I didn't have any really good reasons. So Mm -hmm. I just kind of started over. I, and that's when I ended up signing with Meinl Symbols. That was closer to the sound I wanted rather than just, well, you guys make expensive stuff. This Mm -hmm. should be good. Um, I reevaluated my heads. You know, I was playing response two, which are thick double ply heads. I eventually went to uh, single ply heads, and so the whole thing kind of started there. And then with that twenty-two inch kick, it just was—it was too much for what I was currently doing. The twenty. Uh, played better, but I will say like the reason why I stuck with twenty twelve fourteen was the feel. When I sit behind twenty twelve fourteen, I feel like I'm on my kit, and when I sit behind mm-hmm. anything else, I feel like I'm on someone else's kit. And I mean that with my own drums. I still own a bunch of twenty two ten sixteens and twenty two mm-hmm. thirteen. I have everything, but when I'm on twenty twelve fourteen, I feel like I'm on my kit. That's all I want for all of my students is. Where do you feel like you're at home? Is it behind a bop kit? Is it be, you know, I've got a few students that are 24, 13, 16, and that feels completely normal to them. Yeah. And it's like, cool. Then you feel like you're at home. That's what I want for you guys.
2: Yeah, I think the play, I mean, I think of the the kind of playing you're into these days. uh, Those drums would just be too slow, big drums like that. They would just be too slow to respond, and it would be a muddy mess if you're trying to play articulate patterns and things. And if you're on a bop kit and you go flat,
1: <laughs> it's going to be a little weird, right? So, so everything is based off of you. And I think that that's when that all clicked for me. Like, oh, your sound, meaning what are you trying to go for? What are you trying to project to the world? When I just thought, well, as long as it's expensive, it's going to be fine. It's like, no. At some point, you get to a price point. I would say really nowadays, it's just in that medium price point. It's all kind of the same as far as quality. They're all great. You know, yeah. I mean, we've proven on the show that Thomas is destroying it in the mid-range price drum sets. Yeah. There would there's nothing in that new SLP line that I would say, oh, that just can't handle what I'm going for. Yeah, you know, no. so but the sizes would be the thing where I would say, no, I actually don't feel comfortable on this, no matter who makes it.
2: Yeah, yeah, and I think I mean back in the day. Not even that long ago, 20 years ago, I don't think you can get a 20-inch bass drum to do what you can do now. Like You can get a 20-inch okay, bass totally drum agree. to sound super huge. I mean, the 18 that I gig with, especially if you put a mic on it, I mean, it sounds like a 22. I mean, you, you wouldn't be able to really say that drum's right. too small for what you're doing.
1: I think the eighteen would only be too small in your band practice room with no mics. Because yeah. you just couldn't get the volume out. But yeah, exactly. as long as you if you're just going for tones, you can totally do it. So hope that helps. And we've got one more audio
2: question. Yeah. This one's from Casper. Casper
3: Hi guys. Thanks so much for an amazing, amazing show. I can't get enough of the podcast and really nice to feel like there's somebody out there. It's a great feeling. Thanks again. Um, uh, so my question is this. Uh, I'm joining a cover band uh, with a very, very large repertoire of like 300 songs. And they're very, you know, the common dance songs like Lady in Red, or Footloose, etc. And I've noticed that there's a lot of hand claps and that funny sound that, you know, the fade in cymbal sound or whatever. And I'd like to have some, uh, I've never used electronics before, but I'd like to have a basic package with thousands of sounds where I can just put in those things, not necessarily everything, but the most uh, common ones that are really recognizable and signature sounds of those songs. So uh, I know you guys have reviewed a bunch of electronics gear, but I'm kind of confused. Could you guys point me to the, the basic package that could get, me, uh, could get me started? Thanks so much.
2: So that's a great question. I think um, this is definitely a rabbit hole where once you start trying to get the exact sound from the original recording, you're going to be chasing ghosts because so much was done in the studio to make that sound. But if you kind of subtract all that and say, well, what does it sound like? Does it sound sort of like a Roland 808? Does it sound sort of like a Roland 909? Does it sound sort of like a Lindrum? Like if you have the classic samples, which... Lucky for all of us, they're all in every electronic drum module. All right. the, I mean, they might not call Absolutely. it the Roland 808 because it might be a Yamaha product or, <laughs> or an Alesis product, but there's going to be an 808 sounding snare sound. There's right. going to be a Lindrum sounding snare drum in every one of these. So I would say if you don't want to worry about loading in your own samples, the Roland Octopad is really great. The Alesis new pad they just came out with, is it called Strike, I think? No, um, it's actually called the Alesis New Pad. New Pad, yeah. Whatever yeah. it's called. <laughs> I'm going to be checking it out in Nam up close and personal, but all the videos I've seen so far, it's very promising, and the price is really affordable. So check out, I mean, really any multi-pad that has a you know a couple hundred sounds in it, they're going to have those basics, the 808 kicks, the 808 snares, the 909 yeah. kicks, the 909 snares, the Linn drum, the Simmons toms, like all the hand claps, the tambourines, it's all going to be in there. And I'm assuming you can probably find, I mean,
1: unless they've been destroyed, I'm sure you can find these a little bit more affordable on, on some used websites, used music websites like reverb and stuff. Yeah, exactly. I I know that my, uh, Yamaha, uh, DTX multi 12, Mm -hmm. uh, I, I hit the hell out of that thing because I, I started using that when I was like still swinging for the fences and it's totally fine i've let other drummers in sacramento borrow it for gigs for the exact same reason that casper is talking about they're like dude i've got one cover gig it's yeah. not even my band i just have to do this gig just take my multi-12 it's all in there you literally just program it like you'll find the hand clap section yeah. there's like 20 of them so
2: yeah and that's yeah. why i like the octopad i think it gets a bad rap because you can't load samples into it but if you're not really into that, you just need electronic sounds. They're all, everything's in there. So it's depending on what tool, like the band, one band I play in when we're actually replicating the record, I need to load my own sounds because they're, you know, 30% of the sound of the song is what does that kick drum sound like? But if I just need something that sort of hits like a, like a subby kick drum, it's going to be in any module you don't have to do the right. exact same thing and
1: uh, on the clap stuff don't rule out using an external trigger to go into that module because there are times where you're like well i don't want to hit that and lose the snare because it wasn't just hand claps it was hand claps on top of a snare so having yeah. maybe your side snare with it with a trigger and then routing the hand claps to that you still get your snare sound and the hand claps and almost all of these modules will have a trigger out on them yep so that's that beautiful all right it's time for our
2: picks of the week Um, Okay, so my pick of the week. uh, So this, I was talking about it earlier where I discovered some sticking patterns that I was way less fluent with than I thought I was. And I realized it was because I was always practicing them after I practiced a bunch of other things. So I'd go through like singles and right-hand doubles improvised for a minute. And I'd go through all the variations of that. And it wasn't until the end of my warm-up that I finally did mixed accents with left-hand doubles and single strokes. And, okay. and I'm wondering why I'm 20% less accurate with that. It's because I'm doing it at the end of a 20-minute warm-up, and I'm not really as focused on it. So okay. what I found was an app. I was thinking, like, there's got to be, like, a raffle app where you just put cards in a thing. It spins them around, and you can draw one, draw a winner. Okay. So there's an app called Lucky Raffle. It's free. I literally typed in all the different sticking parameters that I wanted to mess around with, like a dozen of them it throws them into a virtual raffle bin. You draw a card and then you get your sticking to play. So that oh, keeps wow. me practicing random orders of these things. So I'm not always doing exercise one, two, three, four, five. It mixes up the right. order. So it's just called, That's really the important. Raffle. it's really important, especially for building, um,
1: the, I don't even want to get into it, but building the myelin that will allow you to, perform better like if you keep doing the routine you've been doing you're just going to get good at that routine but you're actually not growing yeah um, unless somebody asks you to do that routine at a gig yeah but if you (laughs) if you challenge yourself that way and get into a deeper form of practice and they're 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 showing that talent is pretty much coming from sucking at something the the struggle yeah the the thing that makes the talented the talented is that they don't give up during the struggle they push through it every single time and that's what builds those pathways to do the movements faster and more efficient. Um, I'm I'm putting all of my study into the process of learning right now so that my 2019 camps can be much better than any camp I've taught in the past. So I'm like, well, I have to learn how people learn on an actual neurological level to do this. And so what you're doing is
2: actually what they recommend doing. Um, it seems to make sense because you don't get into a habit. I mean, it's like stick control. You do 1 through 13, but how many of us do 14 through 25? Like, I, I can give you the easiest example that will totally relate to what you're going
1: through is they were this uh, one of the books I'm reading was written a while ago, but they, they asked this doctor, well, what would you do about Shaq's free throws? He can't shoot free throws. Mm. And he said, the only thing I would never let him do is shoot a free throw. He would shoot from the 13, from the 16, from the 12 from the 10 and i would uh, i would teach him how to actually make a ball go into a basket (laughs) doesn't matter the distance um and and by challenging him in those ways and making him adapt and overcome those adaptations he would then then a 15 footer would be fine for him but he keeps making the exact same mistake and never pushing through it and getting frustrated and giving up that
2: it just never creates anything new for him so interesting yeah well that Mm -hmm. tangent was brought to you by lucky raffle app (laughs) Um, i think you can use it for anything if you're working on a bunch of different styles you you don't want to always start with the you know james gadson sixteenth no groove just put a bunch of cards in the raffle thing pull or if you just don't know if you want to do rudiments or grooves or timing exercises whatever just mix it up Um, it's been it's been a good way for me because i'm a habit oriented person so i need to always like Jut myself out of habits. And this is how I think that's me. awesome. That's really cool.
1: And it's free. So fantastic. All right. My pick of the week is a YouTube channel. And it's awesome for drummers, but it's awesome just for musicians in general. Uh, so the. The guy's artist name is Bink Binkbeat, Beats, B i n k b e a t s, and this might have been a pick of the week way early on in the podcast. But he does a lot of Dilla stuff, but by himself with organic instruments and a mix of. Um, You know, some keyboards and stuff, but it's really cool to watch him perform these things by himself and create these loops going on and on until you're going like, there's no way that one human did that because he's picking up the bass, then he's singing Mm. and then he plays drums. And you're like, really, do you have to have that good a feel? (laughs) Because when you see the kit in the background and he hasn't gotten there yet, you're like, well, at least he'll suck at that. (laughs) Nope. He's awesome. So uh, check out Bink Beats. Uh, And I'll just let you go down the rabbit hole with it. All of it's really cool stuff. And he does a lot of touring by himself,
2: so it's like a one-man show, and he's all over the place. So, You know, I love that the the music industry collapsing on itself has caused us to be way more innovative. Like, I can't afford to hire Mm -hmm. a band, so I'll just get a looper and do it all myself. I love it. I
1: think it's cool. No, it's great, and it creates some things where then we have to sit there and go, okay, I can't do that, but could I even do i think even visually seeing people play some of this stuff and you go wow if i would have heard that i would have never guessed that's how he got that sound Mm -hmm. Um, and uh because i mean he actually has like sirens where you go like okay well if i heard it it's a sample but then you see him actually crank up the (laughs) siren and you're like oh my gosh that's a tornado warning siren that he threw on his kit that's amazing so those things um, are so
2: hard to find in college when we were doing the uh the percussion ensemble piece "Ionization," like no one, because there's like two sirens in the piece, and oh, you, really? you just couldn't find one. He'd like rent it from Steve Weiss Music or something. Wow, that's <laughs> so awesome. I got to play the siren. That was. That's what my tuition got me. Once were you semester. first chair siren or were you the second guy? I played, I played the other second one. siren.
1: Second siren second and siren. bass drum. Yeah, wrong. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that, bro. Nothing wrong with that at all. All right, everybody. Thanks for listening to this episode. If you can, head over to iTunes and give us a rating and review. That helps other drummers find this. Also, please, if you're listening to this, maybe somewhere where you don't want to be listening to it and you have another way that you like to listen to podcasts but you can't find our podcast there, you have to let us know about that. My Mike and I, there, there couldn't be a more grassroots podcast. We, we just are like, we should do that. And then we started doing it. So we will always take your advice on anything um, and let us know. If there's somewhere that you can't find us and you wish you could, let us know. And if anyone's coming to the NAMM show,
2: grab us. You'll be there Friday? I'll be there Thursday, Thursday and Friday morning, all okay. day Thursday and Friday morning. And I'll, you. I assume you'll be Gretch Meinl, Aquarian. Absolutely, yeah.
1: I'll just be walking around. Um, I'm bringing the guy that made the Groove Scribe, Lou Antuli. Mm-hmm. Uh, he just, I wasn't going to go this year, and then he mentioned that he'd never been to Nam. I was like, well, why don't we just go together? Do it like a Thursday. I can handle a Thursday and a Friday morning. Mm-hmm. Just, I'm not really
2: cut out for a Saturday. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and yeah. So. Speaking of Thursday night, uh, Carter McLean's going to be playing with charlie hunter at the sheraton hotel thursday night so i will be there i assume you'll I will probably be there as well, there as well. so yep. if you're at nam come hang out at the sheraton actually i think that's even outside of the convention so if you're just in southern california you can come check that out fantastic all right everyone have a great day brother i will see you in a few days soon yeah, yeah. and we're gonna we'll be else- uh sent off by verge verge manion here